Welcome to another edition of the Thinking Spatially podcast, the Thinking Spatially podcast series where we think spatially across space and across time about key issues on our planet. Greetings, and thanks for listening. Let's chat about Marco Polo from west to east and back again over land. Marco Polo from west to east and back again over land. While most expeditions that warrant being listed among the discoveries that revolutionized geography were ocean-going voyages, a few land treks are worthy inclusions. Probably the most famous of these overland treks is that of Marco Polo. Marco Polo, a merchant from Venice, Italy, left at the age of 17 in the year 1271 to travel with his father and uncle to China. He would not return for 24 years. 24 years. During his expedition to Asia, he would see things that almost no European had seen at that time. Some things that were so amazing that indeed, not everyone who read Marco Polo's accounts believed that they were actually true. And the Far East on foot was truly far. 4,908 miles or 7,899 kilometers. And this was a straight line distance, which surely did not occur. Roads were few and side trips beckoned. They took gifts with them for Kublai Khan from Pope Gregory X, taking two friars with them. First, they sailed to Israel, where the two friars turned back. The brothers and Marco continued overland, swinging north and south, but always east, through Armenia, Georgia, and the Caspian Sea, south to the Persian Gulf. Once there, they had planned to take to the ocean, but the ships were in terrible condition. Quote, Wretched affairs, only stitched together with twine made from the husk of the Indian nut, end quote. They decided to take the overland route, not a decision to be taken lightly indeed. This overland route took them to Persia, to Afghanistan, cutting across the Gobi Desert, and then into western China. Part of their journey took them along the Silk Road, a network of trade routes through Central Asia. One significant delay of nearly a year occurred in Afghanistan, where they stayed while young Marco was ill. While he reported that there was, quote, nothing at all to eat, end quote, he possessed a keen sense of adventure, curiosity, and observation. It required nearly four years for them to reach Chambalak, C-H-A-M-B-L-A-C, near what is now Beijing. Kublai Khan was in his summer palace, Xanadu, built of marble and gold, with a central hall in which 6,000 people could easily dine. Khan kept a group of 10,000 speckless white horses, and the palace was supported by 200 silk cords. Marco's father, Niccolo, and uncle, Maffeo, had previously met the great Kublai Khan, grandson of the conqueror, Genghis Khan. Upon seeing him again, this time with Marco Polo accompanying him, Kublai Khan was so impressed with Marco's personality and his rapid learning of Chinese, customs, and language that he appointed the young man as an advisor and a governor of a city in eastern China. This required that he embark on still more trips throughout the empire, including Tibet, Burma, and even India. Marco was impressed by China's wealth, social structure, paper money, asbestos, communication system, gunpowder, porcelain, and much more. He was keenly impressed by the coal burning, quote, stones that burn like logs, end quote, that saved untold amounts of wood. China, under the Yuan dynasty, the Mongol Empire, had an economy that dwarfed that of Europe, manufacturing 125,000 tons of iron a year, a figure not achieved in Europe until the 18th century. 
with impressive amounts of salt being produced as well. A canal-based transportation system linked some cities, and citizens could purchase paperback books with paper money. As Kublai Khan aged, the Polos worried about their future, in part, how to exit the country with the fortune they had amassed when Khan would pass away. Pass away. They received his permission to leave if they would escort a Mongol princess to Persia to marry a Persian prince. They set out via a sea route, which took them through Southeast Asia, where again they saw things that almost no European had seen before. But it was no cruise ship vacation. 600 people died on the ship. By the time they reached Persia, only 18 people remained alive. Fortunately, the Polos were among the living. <laughs> Once in Persia, they discovered that the Persian prince had died, so the Mongol princess married his son. They also learned of the death of Kublai Khan, but fortunately, by showing his golden tablet of authority, they were able to travel safely to Venice. Upon their return to Venice, some did not recognize them, and the Polos struggled to speak Italian. Rather than sitting down and writing upon his return, Marco took up his family's business of being a merchant. But after three years, Marco Polo had assumed command of a ship from Venice at war against Genoa. After being captured, he was held in a prison, and while there, a fellow prisoner and the romance writer named Rusticello encouraged Marco to dictate his adventures. The resulting books would become one of the most famous books of his time. He wrote about life on the steppes, about marriage customs of the Mongols, including their practice of polygamy, of felt-covered yurts drawn by oxen and camels, household customs and the division of work between males and females, food and drink, landscapes, languages, history, and much more. The books about his journey are told in Il Milione, The Million, commonly called The Travels of Marco Polo. Some doubted its truth, calling the title short for Quote, a million lies, end quote. When Marco was about to die in 1324, visitors urged him to admit that the book was fitch, fiction, to which he famously proclaimed, quote, I have not told half of what I saw, end quote. Indeed, there are some unexplained items that cast a little doubt on some of the stories. For example, he never mentioned some key things about Chinese culture, such as tea, and his name as a visitor is not recorded in the Chinese annals of the empire. However, Marco Polo's books were read and influenced were read by and influenced explorers for centuries afterwards, including Christopher Columbus and Henry the Navigator. These were the first books to describe the whole width of Asia, its flora, fauna, river systems, topography, sociology, and politics. Polo's book gave details on the construction of Chinese junks, which were among the most seaworthy of ships. As he and his family were merchants, he provided much information on trading possibilities with Persia, China, Siberia, Tibet, Burma, Laos, Siam or Thailand, Cochin China, Indochina, Japan, Java, Sumatra and Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and India. This sparked interest in global trade and gave rise to the merchant middle class in the centuries to come. His information gradually found its way onto maps, yay, but as indicated as I mentioned earlier, many people doubted much of what he said and many of his contributions were not appreciated until decades or even centuries later. With the end of the Mongols' reign, the Silk Road and the trading avenue it provided between Europe and Asia went into decline. It was in part due to this decline that led the European powers to seek a connection with Asia by sea. This stimulated the 1492 voyage of Columbus, da Gama's 1497 route around Af Africa to India, Balboa's 1513 voyage across the Atlantic, 
Magellan's 1519 global voyage, the 1513 voyages of Alvarez and Perestrello, and Fernão Pérez de Andrade and Tomé Pérez diplomatic and commercial mission of 1517, and the many who followed. Marco Polo's writings immensely influenced geography, trade, exploration. For example, his description of paper substituting for gold and silver as currency came as a surprise even to the mercantile Polo family. This efficient communication system also, consisting of three grades of dispatch, much like second class, first class, and on his imperial majesty's service, top priority in modern terms. This system and its delivery on horseback was not evident again until the short-lived Pony Express on the American Great Plains in the 1800s, but more importantly, it influenced modern postal systems. His descriptions found their way into maps, such as the Catalan world map of 1375. His system of measuring distances by day's journey turned out to be remarkably accurate. All the more astounding is that Marco Polo's expedition took place at the end of the Middle Ages in the 13th century, fully 200 years before significant voyages began by the European nations. In fact, many of the places Marco had seen were not seen again regularly by Europeans until the 20th century. At the time of his writings, most maps in use were either still from the Greeks from 1400 years earlier, or from Alidrisi from 200 years earlier. Therefore, Marco Polo's expedition was ahead of its time in many ways. It provided the first Renaissance stirrings of people yearning to explore and understand other places and cultures. It also gave geography some early grounding for providing the framework for enabling people to understand the places and cultures that they would encounter. And that, my friends, is Marco Polo, from west to east and back again over land. Marco Polo, from west to east and back again over land. Thanks for listening.